0: Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. So, Red Power, so thankful that you were able to make it onto Dub's podcast, Connection Loop. For you guys that do not know, Dub is a video communication platform. We allow you to quickly create, share, and track videos with Gmail, LinkedIn, dozens of CRM systems. Um, if you don't already have an account, go to dub.com, check it out, it's a free trial. Brett, I saw some content that you had posted somewhere and I said, I got to reach out to this guy. I looked at your LinkedIn profile. I saw that you are a toy maker or you have created some toys. You created a company around toys. I'm your journalist. You're an author. You're a coach. So I love some of the content. Love some of your vibe. Love to hear about yourself.
1: Wow, thank you. Pleasure to be on the program, and I appreciate you reaching out. You know, the toy company was my first company that I started in early 2007, and we exited that company in 2013, and I became a, an executive coach and, and started a coaching practice. I used to work for the government. I used to work for, for some consulting companies, but the minute I got the keys to my first business, I knew that that's what I needed to be doing and never looked back and just love. Working with the teams that, that we put together and working with clients to help solve their problems, can't think of anything better. You know, I'm fortunate enough to have, be able to do, have a platform at Ford and have a platform at Inc and a couple other, at Thrive Global and a couple other platforms and be able to write about the issues that my clients face, the issues that I've faced in business. And um, one of the things that you love is video and, and this new LinkedIn live platform is my first sort of dip into live work, I've done some live TV, but yeah, you know, on camera, live sort of podcast interview type work. But I've been doing that since early on on LinkedIn Live. I think I've done about 70 or 80 shows, five days a week, pretty much. And of just having a blast interviewing people, learning from people who are doing really interesting things in the world. So the live platform and the video platform has actually given me a new way to learn and actually create
0: relationships with people that I hadn't had an opportunity to really talk to or interact with before. So that's compelling. I want to understand this journey, though. So you went from running a toy company to being an executive coach. And now you're really a a personality. You're a video personality. You've done, obviously, so many shows using live video, which is tremendous. would love to explore that. Talk to me about that journey. How did you find yourself on that path?
1: I don't know how I found myself on the path to to be an entrepreneur. I was doing a job that I loved. I got to travel. I was making decent money. I was actually doing projects that helped people. I was doing international aid work. You know, from the surface and from everything I thought I wanted in life, professionally and personally, I had all of that. And I had done the things and sort of created a lifestyle that I thought I wanted. But, you know, I'm sure you know what that feeling is like. But you wake up one day and you just say, something's not right, you know. And about that time, I met a guy who was doing the same kind of work and I guess was feeling the same kind of way, that that something in his life and our lives wasn't quite right. And so we started talking about entrepreneurship. We started talking about owning a business. And the idea just kind of grew. And over a course of a year or two years, we kept talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. Until finally one day we said, you know, we got to shut up and do this or stop talking about it. We're not helping each other if we're just going to continue talking about it. So we quit the jobs and we looked for company to buy. We wanted to be acquisition entrepreneurs, essentially. We wanted to find a company that we could take over and bring in capital, bring in expertise and bring in some energy too. And that was the toy company. We found this tiny little toy one product company in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina of all places. And I mean, we looked at a dozen different types of business. We looked at a dead body removal company. We looked at a, a roofing company. We looked at all kinds of things and none of it really got us excited. This little toy product, we saw it. We fell in love with it. We probably paid too much for it, but it was a product that we knew that we could do something with. And that launched a toy company that became an Inc. 500 company. We actually had a public and we had an exit from that company, but we worked on over 80 products and during our ownership in our managing of the company and three of those products were toys of the year and we won 40 over 40 design awards for product that we designed and one of the things i did before i did any of the business stuff and before i became a consultant and professional stuff i was in the peace corps and in the peace corps i was a teacher at a university and i did learn that i really like to teach and i began thinking more about it after we sold the company I had been a mentor. I'd been mentoring some other smaller businesses and some other entrepreneurs and really decided that was something I wanted to continue doing. And I needed to figure out a way that I could do that. And, you know, I've since become part of a great network of coaches. I learn from them every day. I've I've got coaches myself and mentored myself. And what I found is that, you know, it's like building any other business. It's a daily hustle. You've got to talk to people, you've got to network, you've got to build reputation. That's what I've done over the last five years in the coaching business. And really, really, really love it. I've got the worst case of ADD in the world. And so being able to talk to somebody and have a different problem and a different issue to work on every day with a different client suits me and my personality really just perfectly.
0: Very interesting. Talking about the toys, I want to start there. What was the initial toy of the company? And then what were the, you mentioned 80 products that you guys eventually had. So what kind of toys were these? You guys won some awards, you got traction, obviously great demand for these. What were they?
1: Uh, well, there were a lot of failures in all those 80 products. Not all of them did very well. But we did, our first product was a little frog aquarium. And that product came after a couple of years after we owned it. We were able to turn that into the toy of the year in 2010, I think, or nine, I think it was. And that product really took us from being a $50,000, maybe $100,000 company to a you know, $9 million company. And I wouldn't say overnight, but when the product hit, and it made us big splash. We catapulted from really a small couple person company to think with over a hundred employees in operation in a couple of different countries. And so that allowed us, and this was all, keep in mind, this was all during the recession. And so. And I always always credit the recession for keeping us sharp and keeping us and making us a better company because we didn't have access to capital. We didn't have access to the money. And so we created a remote-controlled snake, and that became a toy of the year. And then we created a flying bird, a remote control bird, and that became a toy of the year. We did all kinds of products. We did dinosaur products. We did a product for a TV show called Dino Dan. So we did all kinds of products around science and nature it was our sort of theme. The company was called Wild Creation. So most of our products had a science and nature theme. We did products for Animal Planet. We did products for Toys R Us. We did products for Brookstone, for Science Museum in the UK. So we did products all over the world, but with a science and nature theme.
0: So what is that process like? How do you come up with the idea for a toy? I mean, I see a toy creation as sort of, it's almost like a metaphor for being truly open-minded, connected to your inner child, you know, taking data. If you have kids, watching them, watching other kids, doing your research, and then coming up with something that is risky that you got to put out there get some data and then see if it has traction. And if it does, you know, it's, it's a great potential. What does that process look like?
1: Well, we took it and attacked it from a bunch of different
0: perspectives.
1: And so you know our first couple of products were product were driven by our ideas and by our sort of internal process and those actually aside from the the eco aquarium or the frog aquarium didn't do so well and and actually hurt the company in a lot of ways because we weren't sure about how to order we had some product that sat in the warehouse you know and for years what really transformed our company was two things number one Learning that if you went to some of the big toy type of retailers, they would tell you what they wanted. And they have, you know, Toys R Us, for example, had a massive operation in China. They had a massive operation around the world and they knew what was going to be popular. They knew what they wanted and they knew what they wanted on their shelves. So if you could get there and you could get into that system and get to the point where they ask you to make certain things for them, then you could make that product with a certain degree of certainty that you weren't going to get killed on inventory. You weren't going to get killed on, you know, and so we got into that sort of system where we were making things for them based on what they wanted and what they were going to order. And so that gave us such a degree of confidence that we can make that product. We could take the risk on that product. The other way that we started getting product was we started working with inventors all over the country, these independent inventors, and became more of an open innovation company where we would license product from them. If we saw something that had potential, a lot of the inventors that we ended up meeting, their challenge was not inventing an interesting product. Their challenge was taking it to market. And we had an ability to take a product to market. We had the retailers that we knew. We knew how to get into the retailers. We knew how to package and we knew how to manufacture the product. And so that gave us a unique ability to spend our resources and our, you know, narrow down our focus and narrow down our, what we were really good at and not spend resources where we weren't as strong. And so we licensed a lot of product from independent inventors that had a good product but needed to help to take that product to market. And so that was the other way that we ended up finding products.
0: Got it. So, I mean, it sounds like along this path, you were a good negotiator. You were a good listener, you know, good business person, because it sounds like you were not completely focused on inventing, creating stuff that you were excited about that you wanted to do, but rather listening to what your clients, what your retailers, resellers, manufacturers, et cetera, uh, found data or found demand for. I applaud you for that, because I think one of the things that I hear about a lot is that someone is, quote unquote, passionate about a product or solving a problem, and they spend all their blood, sweat and tears to create that product. And it might not be as big as they think. You know, the addressable market might not be as large. And as a result, they spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of blood, sweat and tears to go through that process to to actually find out that it's not going to be something that takes them to where they want to go. And rather, it's something that is probably a hobby. So I can definitely relate to that. So, you know, I applaud you for going through that process and really, I would say, being sort of data driven on that path.
1: Those were lessons learned. I mean, I think some of our initial product was definitely emotionally driven and definitely passion projects and things that we thought, God, there's no way that can't be a hit. And, you know, you learn your lessons and you take your knocks and then you just sort of figure out that, OK, oops, maybe uh, maybe you shouldn't have taken that route and we won't do that again. So you learn your lessons and particularly when you're an entrepreneur early on, you're eager and you're enthusiastic and you you do make emotional decisions and We got lucky because I mean, the business, when we bought the business, that was an emotional decision. It wasn't data driven whatsoever. And we just, you know, we just got lucky on the first product that it it enabled us because it was so popular and staggering numbers every year that it allowed us to make some mistakes and learn some hard lessons and and enabled being able to keep going and enabled us to do that. And so we got lucky. (laughs) We got really lucky. (laughs)
0: Well, I think that a big part of data is actually making sometimes emotional creative decisions, putting them out there, seeing what works, seeing what sticks, seeing what doesn't, and then adapting, pivoting based on that. So it's a great cyclical model that I think you employed. It sounds like throughout this whole process, you've also been a writer. So I noticed on your LinkedIn account that you written for Forbes, Inc., Thrive, CNBC. Um, Talk to me about that. How does that kind of fit into your whole world?
1: You know, got lucky. We were a Inc. 500 company a couple times, and
0: you know, back then, I
1: think we just—I don't know if how that quite remember how it happened, but I know that we maybe we asked, or they asked us to write a column about you know what we were doing about some of the challenges we've had in the business, and I think now I've been doing a column there for five or six years. And that led to others, right? I mean, it led to the Forbes column and it led to Thrive Global. And I do something once a month for CEO World. And it's led to other sort of media opportunities. And um, the writing at first was, I looked at it as sort of part of the branding and part of the media plan. For me now, it's more cathartic and more, I actually use it to solve problems. I use it to think about and think through issues and get other, you know, to be honest with you, the thing it does the most for me is it allows me to be able to call somebody that I want to talk to that has got an opinion or a unique opinion on something, a, a challenge that I'm facing. So that I can get their two cents on something. And that helps me think through the challenges that I'm, you know, so when you call somebody and you say, Hey, I'm calling from Forbes, I want to get a quote. I want to pick your brain about this issue are going to say, absolutely you know what's your question and so it opens up a lot of valuable conversations for me and my clients I think so that I can better help them their challenges and the side benefit is it's certainly it's fun to write and be on these platform and actually get the side benefit from that which is to have conversations like this it
0: definitely works because obviously I think you and I are connected based on content that you actually put out there so that's just a testament for how important it is to either be putting out written content uh, content video content whatever someone can do because because the, the sort of visibility and the relationships that you can create as a result of it are, are pretty profound. Because it's not, it's, you know, when you compare original content to, uh, let's say, advertising or sponsored posts, it's just night and day. I really appreciate your content. Please keep writing it. So you wrote a book. Actually, you've written two books, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So right here. Entrepreneur's <laughs> Book of Actions. But then before that, you actually wrote One Million Frogs.
1: Yes. So One co- Million Frogs.
0: And I'm going to guess that the reason why it's titled that was because of one of your early product. It was the first product, right? That's right, The Tank, and you maybe sold a million of those, or what is that? Oh, millions, millions and millions.
1: <laughs> the story behind that, the, the book I co-wrote with my partner, who's also a, an ink columnist, it was a sort of a cathartic exercise for he and I to kind of go through the ups and downs of that business and, and how that sort of evolved, and it was really a self-published story for us, and we sort of kind of remember the some of the things that we went to in our sort of maturity and our sort of naivety maybe when we first started all the way to this certainly a more mature business person and a more seasoned business person and some of the things that happened to get us there to really better at what we were doing better leaders and better business people that was one of my frogs the story of the title was from our first staff meeting. We had a couple people and we wanted to take this very process-driven, very consulting-driven approach, I guess, to the business. And we sat down in a conference room and we started doing SWOT analysis and we started doing all these fancy-smancy things for that the consultants do to try to get to where we wanted to go with the business. And everybody's eyes were kind of glazed over and they were like, well, what are you guys doing? This is stupid. We've never you know, sat down in a room like this and done these things. And my business partner and I, Pete, we walked out of the room at lunch, and we sat down and we said, "We got to figure something else out. We've got to take a different approach. We've got to make this simpler. We're not reaching our team." And so I walked back in the room and I wrote one million frogs on the whiteboard and said, "This is what we want to do. This is what we, we want to sell: one million of these." And that was something that people could get their head around. They thought it was ridiculous, thought it was absolutely a pipe dream, but it was something that we could understand, right? It was something that we could say, here's what we're going to achieve. And that's where the title of the book came, because that that was sort of a transformational moment, at least for me. And I think because it gave us a goal and not all this other stuff, it simplified what we were going to
0: do. Well, I love that because it's the beauty of kind of reverse engineering, coming up with a goal, coming up with a vision, and then working backwards to accomplish that. And the great thing as a leader, I think that you did was that you created a clear vision um, for your team to be able to pursue and a very kind of attainable, but something also numerical so that we can know, hey, look, that's our goal and we're either gonna hit it or we're not. So let's just take actions that get us closer to that.
1: Yeah, everything is on that number, right? All decisions are made based on that number and that goal.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's this kind of great adage in business where you know, if people can guarantee a 1% lift or growth to their business versus having a small chance of getting a 10% or even a 10X lift for their business, what would they rather do? And by asking that question to someone, can kind of figure out what their risk profile is but if you interview fortune 500 ceos and people in leadership positions a lot of very successful folks would say look we'd rather actually have you go and pursue a 10x opportunity than just a one percent opportunity and the reason why is because if you put that big harry audacious goal out there the chances of you being successful in some right are much bigger you know so i think maybe you (laughs) either consciously or unconsciously did something like that so i think that's a great leadership tactic
1: it was not intentional. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, you learn, right? I mean, it, it was a kind of a hail mary in the sense to sort of get people, wake people up, but it worked, and I think it gave us the, the focus and the decision. You know, it helped drive our decisions and, and what we did, and and I think that you know ultimately it worked. It was a, it was out of the hat. It was definitely a, a hail mary, but sometimes that's leadership.
0: Well, you've mentioned luck a couple of times. You mentioned this hail mary. So what I want to understand is, is this humility, or do you legitimately feel like you've just had this luck in your life? Because <laughs> from my perspective, it looks like you've had a clearly sort of articulated, well-thought-out research. Of course, there's been some failure. I mean, that's with all of us, but you've made, you know, good choices. There's a great quote about luck, which is just, you know, I'm sure we've all heard it before, but it's when you, you know, align a couple of things, all of which really come down to being accountable, being responsible, making good choices. So talk to me about that.
1: I think we made good choices. I think we made some good decisions. I think we did things right, a great extent. We had some things that we could have done a lot better. I think at the end of the day, we do make our own luck. I don't discount that at all. And I think we worked hard. We did a lot of the right things to sort of make success more likely. You know, we did the right activity. We had the right processes. I have a great business partner that complimented my weaknesses and I complimented his. So there are a lot of elements of success there. We had good people on the team, you know, but at the same time, you know, I know people, I see businesses in my practice all the time that have a lot of those same elements. And it's just bad timing for the product, right? There's something that makes it not work. So I do believe in luck. I do believe in that we did have some luck. We hit at the right time. And I'll tell you why I say that is, and I hate to say that the recession was good, but the recession was good for our business because the first year and a half of the business, it wasn't a toy store in America that would give me the time of day. They were successful. Things were going well. They didn't need new products. They had representatives that would bring them in and tell them what they needed to buy, what was selling well around the country. Then the recession hit and people became desperate. And so then I got a chance to get into a couple of toy stores because they were willing to take a chance on anything that might work. And our product was working at the time. We had the president of the Small Toy Store Association stand up in their annual general meeting at Toy Fair. And she said, this is the only thing in my store selling. I sold 30 of them last week. You have to buy this product. And what happened? All of a sudden, we went from a small, you know, barely surviving company to a $9 million company because every toy store in America bought the product. So there is luck, right? And there is, you know, hitting at the right time. And I totally agree. We did put ourselves in a position for
0: that. Sounds like in your next book, The Entrepreneur's Book of Actions, you probably compiled together a number of great kind of tips and tricks, some philosophies, some mindsets on, on how one can sharpen their pencil, so to speak, on their entrepreneurial path. I'd love to learn a little bit about that from you.
1: Well, this book for me, it was fun to write because I simply took the things that worked for me, whether they worked for everybody, probably not. But there are a lot of really simple product of uh, sort of things in the book that you can do to be a better entrepreneur, or to be a better person, be a better member of your family. To me, these are things that, again, put you in that position for success. It's a little different than most books in the sense that this is a book that you carry with you for 365 days. And every day gives you an action, gives you something to work on, it makes you take 20, 30 minutes a day and focus on your development, on your issues, on things that you want to get better at. And that's what this book is. It's a daily exercise book. So you take the first chapter, is about finding your passion and purpose. It's about getting and working on that week. Every day you start working on your personal mission statement and to figure out what you're going to work on this year. This book that helps that first chapter, that first week helps you get ready for the year and so that you can work on these things. But you find out what drives you, what your passion is, what your values are. And I find that a lot of entrepreneurs aren't really sure. They haven't written these things down. They haven't taken the time to figure those core really important things out. And then there are a bunch of weeks in here that are, I think are really interesting. One of the things is, is I have a problem with is procrastination. So I've got a whole chapter here about procrastination. I really love learning to say no. That's a, something I had to learn as a salesperson. And I, as a person that likes to say, yes, I had to learn to say no as an entrepreneur. As chapter in here about burnout, about taking time away from the business so that you can refresh and revive yourself. There's networking tips. There's, it just goes on and on again for 53 weeks. Just every week is working on little skills that are going to make you better in what you do. Balance, I mean, there's there's a chapter in here about hiring. There's a chapter in here about working with difficult people. There, again, there's in here about self-promotion, about how do you promote yourself as an entrepreneur at the same time promoting your business. It really just little lessons that we learned along the way that I think will help make
0: people better. And along your way, what are some of the biggest challenges, the biggest sufferings that you endured, potentially failures and personal business? Give us some more stories and how you kind of got out of those.
1: Look, I mean, there are lots of product failures were huge. Those first couple of products cost us a couple hundred thousand dollars. We made a mistake to take on Some consultants that didn't work out and those were expensive. You know, we had hiring issues that were always a challenge. The first couple of years, we had a a really horrible business model of having to drive product around the country and deliver it every week. I was on the road, Uh, my business partner was on the road. Our challenge in the first couple of years was we didn't have enough people to help us deliver the product and actually get the product out to market. So we ended up doing a lot of that ourselves, which took away our time of being able to think about the business and work on the business instead of working in the business. That took us a couple of years to really solve that problem and find people that we could count on that could do that for us so that we could work on the business. So that was hard. I mean, we were gone all the time. So that took the toll on the family. It took the toll on you know relationships. It took the toll financially we didn't pay ourselves for the first two years so because we didn't have the cash flow to really do that if we wanted to continue trying to build the business that was you know we were getting down to the last little bit of money in the bank so you know we were probably a couple of months away from having to just like shut the door and go get jobs again so I lived in a van for two years practically delivering this product because I didn't want to you know we'd go out on these week-long delivery routes and maybe two nights out of that we'd stay in a hotel the other nights we'd sleep in the back of the van so so, you know, we paid that price and we were willing to pay that price to make it work, but it wasn't easy and it wasn't fun. I don't think I want to do it again, but that was what it required. And that's what we had to do. And we didn't want to quit. We didn't really, that wasn't something we wanted to do. So we drug it out and we drug it out and we drug it out. And we got that hit. So I don't know if that answered the question, but I think that that's sort of all of it was a trial. All of it was not what we expected. I remember telling my wife that we'll be profitable in six months because that's what we thought, that's what our models showed us, and that was far from the truth.
0: Well, I think these are important lessons. These are harsh realities that I think anyone that wants to take that risk to go, quote unquote, live the American life, the American dream, be the entrepreneur, have their own business. You know, there are certain realities. You know, having proper runway, being able to downgrade your life, being able to decrease your monthly nuts so that you can endure, stick around. You know, go through that whole process profitability process. Sometimes people think that it takes X, but it really takes X plus Y. And that's just the reality of business because life happens. And so I applaud you for being honest about that. And also, you know, to the people that are listening, I always just recommend that reverse engineer, you know, think worst case scenario, think best case scenario, have your vision, don't give up, but at the same time, be smart about it and pursue a path that kind of increases your chance of success. I think that's really good advice. Now, the question for you is, after this experience, after this process, you pivoted your career to coaching and consulting. And I know I asked you this before, but I'd like to understand a little bit more about how you decided to make that shift, that pivot, and really what the catalyst was. Why didn't you stay in the industry that you were in? Was it a non-compete situation, or was it just a personal choice?
1: Uh, it was a personal choice. I've learned by taking the chance early on to go on the Peace Corps and then leaving a, a really great job to start the company. What I really learned about myself was is that follow my gut, right? And follow my heart and listen to that and not tune it out. And And I've been happier when I've made those decisions by following what my mind and my gut or my heart is telling me to do than by making those voices going to go away and following the money or following the, you know, this prescribed path. And so, you know, something that said to me, you love to teach, you love helping solve business challenges, and you might be pretty good at that. I mean, I also had great mentors and I got connected with people like Marshall Goldsmith and Mark Thompson and, and people like that and saw you know, their practices and what they were doing, and the work, kind of work that they were doing. And I could see myself doing that. And so, you know, it seemed to me to be something I would be good at and something that I would really enjoy. And that's been the case. And so it wasn't magic. It, it wasn't this light bulb moment. It was, you know, this is a great time. I'm exiting this company. It's a natural fit. I'm, I'm good at it. I might enjoy it. Let's we'll start a practice and do it. I like the building process. I like the building of a business process. I don't want to sleep in the back of a van again, but you know, I, I think <laughs> um, the challenge of it and the excitement of it when you get those early wins and you get some of those early, in my case, you know, you get your first couple of clients, you know, that's, that's really exciting, right? And when you see and, and you're able to help them, guide them and help them with some of their challenges and help them be more successful, avoid some of the pitfalls that we all uh, know are out there, that's exciting. And so I, you know, I find excitement. The other thing is, final thing on that is I find excitement in helping people be successful. And so I don't know what else I could do that would give me the chance to do that. So I, I'm pretty happy with the path that sort of, I, I guess I kind of felt it, I went to.
0: Got it. And at what point did you decide to jump into the LinkedIn ecosystem to create a live show? I'm talking about Power Lunch Live. The reason why I ask is because we're absolutely crazy and enamored about video. It's it's our entire business. You know, Dub has 13,000 users now. People are sending videos on all channels, all over the places: email, LinkedIn, Gmail, yep. CRMs. And it's been a tremendous experience for us to see people on a very embryonic industry make certain choices on how they can leverage this powerful medium of video to really grow their business and to have fun in the process. So what was that process like for you? And then where does some of the things that you're doing now with video?
1: We all use video for the last few years since we've been able to use our phones to record and do things. And it's just getting better and better. Your platform is is one of those where it's just it's making it so easy for people to use video for their content. And, you know, I've I've been hearing about LinkedIn Live for a while that it's coming. And I haven't been thinking about it in terms of a show but I understood just having been in the, the journalism side of it and the, sort of keeping up with what's going on in social and what's going on in business. Um, you know, you just see this trend, right? You see this, whether it be Facebook Live or Twitter Live or any of these other live platforms, you see where it's going and you see the use of video and how it's being used. And I think a lot of people knew, that, and you as, as well, you know, understand the impact that it's going to have. I mean, LinkedIn, in a couple of years, that's all you're going to have on LinkedIn if video. You know, And I think all of the platforms, whether it be Forbes or Inc or any of these big other media platforms, they're going to have to recognize that too, right? And acknowledge it too and figure out how to... Remain relevant. You know, when I got a chance to be on LinkedIn and be one of the early people on LinkedIn Live before it goes public, and I don't know when it's going to go public, but I jumped at it and didn't have an idea in mind. But I have been interviewing people for a long time, and whether that be at conferences or for Inc or any of those platforms. And so I just said, you know, I will, we decided that it'd be a great way to just kind of continue that and use video and, and use the content. And so over the last five months or six months that we've been doing it, you know, a, a strategy to use it and how we're going to use it. It has as you know, the content, we've turned the LinkedIn Live now into a podcast and we've turned it into articles on Forbes and Inc. I do a book review on Forbes every week, and I've used the book reviews as a way to get the authors on Forbes to do interviews on LinkedIn Live. And so now, you know, not only am I reading their books and doing a Forbes review on their book, I'm getting them on the program to have a live. And I want to turn this, these lives into ultimately into a book of dice from top leaders, it's morphed into this sort of larger part of our content strategy. And again, it, it just opens up this whole ability to talk to people that you wouldn't, like, you know, you and I, we're talking by video now, and it gives us a chance to start a relationship and start helping each other with our projects and with our, you know, products and so on and so forth. And it's given us wonderful opportunity to meet people that you wouldn't have normally met and you know the fact that we can do this conversation remotely and i don't have to sit there in the office where you are you know end up meeting somewhere else we can do this right here right now where we are and have this amazing conversation as if we're next sitting next to each other i just think that's phenomenal and i think it just opens up the ability for us to have really interesting conversation for people that just normally wouldn't get to do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm totally enamored with the format as well. I, I'm not much of a live video guy, and I think there's a couple of different reasons for that. I'm a sucker for the edit. You know, I really like to kind of put production value into it, get out there multiple scenes, you know, a lot of meta, a lot of kind of intercutting, different conversations, so on and so forth. So I think that's my sort of excuse for not going on live too many times. I kind of suffer while watching some folks go live where they're sort of stumbling and trying to look at stuff and you can tell that they're distracted trying to read comments trying to get text set up and at some point I just said okay I'm going to be a a little bit standoffish with live unless it's someone that's a professional that knows how to do it that has a format so I applaud you for doing that I wish more people took the time to actually get the format right and to make it more interesting you know and truly embrace that meeting but I think that's all coming soon I think you know to your point about creating relationships through content like this, having these relationships. I actually think that relationships and conversations like this are actually much more intimate, much more deep, much more significant than if I meet someone in person and just have a chit chat for 30 minutes over coffee or a beer, even, you know, at the office. And I think the reason why that is, is because in conversations like this, there's a massive amounts of vulnerability and open mindedness and just sharing true life stories. So, you know, within a one hour recorded conversation like this, you can really understand understand what a person does, why they've done it and how they've gotten there. And that whole origin story is what I completely get enamored with. That was really my catalyst for this show. It was create something that's mutually beneficial to allow, you know, me to kind of interview heroes really, and to share their stories, but then also create content for other people to listen to and enjoy
1: I get that. And I think my show's a little long-winded sometimes. Like, you know, there's spots of it, you know, we end up doing about a 45-minute show. But at the end of the day, though, you do get those gems, get those raw moments, those real moments, those authentic moments that are just their goal. Because you're just not going to, I can't capture that. I'm not that great of a writer. I can capture those moments of writing you know? Right. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the same way. Yeah. Uh, so I think, it, yeah, it's, it's powerful. man. It, it really can. And if the format's right. It's wonderful.
0: Totally. Yeah. So, you know, that said, where can folks find you? Web address, socials?
1: You can Google Rhett, R-H-E-T-T, Power, P-O-W-E-R. You'll find my website, reppower.com I've got a new website for the, for powerlunch.live. It's powerlunch.live and it's got the upcoming schedule of guests it's got the new podcast that we've converted uh we've got old episodes from the show you can also find me on inc.com you can find me on forbes.com any of that content is there the book is on amazon and happy to have it you know pick up a copy of the book you can find that all through the website
0: cool and then the book that you're referring to is the entrepreneur's book of actions right right got it okay so we can find on amazon boom there it is awesome love the cover Awesome. So we'll include some links um, to your website and also to the book. And, uh, Rhett, I really appreciate your time. This is a great convo, and I definitely learned a lot from it.
1: Well, thank you, and a and great show and, and great platform that you've put together. I should have flipped the script on you and asked you how you got started because I think that's an interesting story and how you're doing it because in an industry that is really blowing up. So I think it's fascinating what you're taking on.
0: Uh, well, I appreciate you saying that. We'll have to we'll have to go live and I'll share that story. <laughs> Fair enough. That's a deal. That's a deal. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rhett. Appreciate you.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Take care, guys.